Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And on the phone with us today is Sucharita Kadali, VP and Principal Analyst at Forrester, to discuss the implications of the tech titans in today's market and what it means to compete with them and what it means to sort of join them along the way. Welcome, Sucharita. Thanks, Victor. So there has been a significant amount of press about the tech titans, press about their dominance in the market, what they've done to the media market, press that even talks about should the government get involved in, in making sure that they don't create uh, undue influence in markets or monopolies or what have you. Let's take a step back. Who are these tech titans, just to make sure we, we get the names right? Yeah, typically when we think of uh, the tech titans, it's primarily four big companies. It's Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook. Um, but you, but sometimes you'll also get other companies as well in the discussion, anyone from Microsoft to Netflix um, to sometimes even eBay. Um, but really, the tech titans are those top four. And each of these companies started on an idea. They started from someplace. So as we look back, what's learnable about what made them tech titans and that may preserve them as tech titans? Yeah, a significant part of their of the success factors that I think is consistent across all of these large companies is, is of course, um, just a culture of innovation and um, constantly um, developing new products and releasing great new products that resonate with consumers. Now, to create any new great products, you need great people. And what I do think is very unique about um, the, the, these titans are that they do have somewhat unique hiring processes. Um, they often have very collaborative hiring that is committee-based. Um, it's typically a very rigorous process to get through to even um, a level of, of decent consideration. I mean, you will talk to people who have interviewed at Amazon, for instance, and they may have 30 interviews before they even get an offer. Um, so, so that's a significant part of how they're able to get that high quality and that high caliber of talent that can deliver and produce some of the products that they've executed. Yeah, and, and one of the pieces to that end and sort of dealing with sort of the employee experience part of it is all these firms, at least to me, had purpose before purpose was cool. I mean, there was a, a conviction on the part of Jeff or others to be a certain thing before that thing was something to model. I mean, they were the first in Amazon relative to the marketplace, Google relative to fully exploiting data and, and creating an internet that we're become quite familiar with. How does that separate them from the Yahoo's or others of the world that, you know, made a start with the same purpose, but couldn't execute to get that accomplished? You know, I think that probably the company that has been most laser focused on its vision and um, what it wants to achieve is, is probably Amazon. And um, it is all about the customer experience and delivering superior customer experiences on every touch point. And, uh, and, and that is something that, di- that really determines every investment they make and every piece of their customer-facing strategy. Um, and I would contrast that with some of their competitors who, who don't necessarily have that, um, that same laser focus on the customer experience. And I think what's important to keep in mind is that Amazon has also focused on the customer experience, often at the expense of profitability. 
And, um, you know, as is exhibited by everything from how generous its prime program is to its fast shipping to its great prices. And um, other companies just haven't made that same investment. And it's not coincidental that they have lost share to Amazon as as a result. Tuturita, can you break down Amazon a bit and maybe into its operational piece parts? We talk about Amazon often as this monolithic thing, but it's really, I think you had described it as an octopus. So can you walk us through that a bit? Yeah, if I if I had to break it down um, to make it as, as simple as possible, I would say it's three core businesses. One is its retail business. The second piece, which is big and growing and very profitable, is their Amazon Web Services division, which is essentially a B2B IT services um, group within within Amazon. Um, and then the third part is almost the miscellaneous array of all else that is considered Amazon. It's everything from its hardware business. Um, so Amazon, of course, has uh, devices like the Echo device that many of you have heard of, or um, it has uh, experiments with phones and, um, you know, the dash buttons and the wands and various pieces of hardware. Um, there are also components of services, like, for instance, Amazon has a fulfillment business that competes with everybody from the Postal Service to UPS, and that's fulfillment by Amazon. Um, they also have a third-party logistics um, support tool where they're housing inventory on behalf of other companies. Um, and then uh, there are other pieces of the business, too, that are new and emerging, like its marketing services group, which is more competitive with Google um, because they are essentially allowing companies the opportunity to bid on keywords on Amazon's site. Um, so there are so many different places that Amazon is competing. And I didn't even mention things like its media business, which it has, is creating, you know, the original content that ends up being part of the Amazon Prime membership, the TV shows and, and the original movies that, that it creates. So there are many, many different parts of, of Amazon. But that seems counterintuitive, though, right, that there's not a core focus or core competency to this firm. I think many companies uh don't understand that you can be in sort of these adjacent markets or be in completely different businesses and still be successful. Oh, yeah. And I think that's one of the lessons of all of these tech titans is that they are in such disparate businesses. Like, you know, Facebook has Oculus and Google has driverless cars and Apple has Beats and, you know, and Amazon has all of the random businesses that it has. And I think that what it does is it challenges this notion, which has been so prevalent in management theory, that you need to be laser-focused on one core business, otherwise it becomes a management distraction. And I think these guys have all, and even Microsoft, you know, which has everything from gaming devices to a cloud business, um, these companies have all proven that, it is possible to have lots of disparate businesses and be very profitable and deliver enormous growth year over year. So as you look at them now, there's there's almost an inevitability to them. I mean, Amazon has been in an ascension mode for a while. So let's let's go a different route for a second and let's look at someone who we thought would be in this crowd, but is not someone like eBay. Um, what happened in eBay that is a lesson for the current Titans and sort of gives it gives hope to others that maybe the Titans are, are beatable in some way. <laughs> yeah, I think um, that there are a couple of things that eBay um, 
has faced these challenges over over the years, and um, they're investing significantly in their business now, and um, and I I'm, I'm rooting for them. But I think that it, over the last decade or so, I think there are two things that eBay has been challenged by, and I and I think that um, even they would probably agree with it. One is that I think they just frankly got fat and happy, um, and eBay is a is to this day a very profitable company. It's very lucrative. It makes a lot of money. And it was very easy to rest on those laurels. And as a result, decision-making within the company um, became very, very difficult. Everything was consensus-driven. I mean, they'll even say that one of the main reasons that they were okay ultimately with the divestiture of PayPal was because um, eBay's culture in many ways was holding PayPal back, that PayPal was not able to invest in um, the innovation that was required to, to innovate in financial services. And um, it was eBay's culture that allowed companies like Braintree to, to thrive. Um, so, so that's, I think, one part of it is, is just the complacency that comes with profitability. Um, the second piece is, is just that they took their eye off the ball of one key part of the customer experience that is so critical um, for, for shoppers, particularly in a large marketplace. Now, they may argue that, oh, they focused on mobile, they focused on AI, and um, you know some of those key things that we hear are so important today. But what they didn't really focus on until probably a couple of years ago was the taxonomy and search on their own website. And most consumers in e-commerce go to a search bar, whether it's on Google or Amazon or eBay, and type in words. And if the search results that come back are not clear and cohesive and easy to follow and consolidated according to the way that consumers expect, um, it's very difficult to navigate those experiences. And Amazon very early on invested in a great taxonomy or at least a better taxonomy that um, helped to map keywords and map products to um, like keywords whereas eBay um, has only more recently even started to do that. So you, you saw, you know, kind of almost an everything-in-the-kitchen-sink approach to search results for many years, and I think that consumers just had a better experience looking for what they were shopping for on Amazon versus eBay and on other sites, too, not just Amazon, like everything from Build.com to, um, to Etsy. So one of the reasons why we're having this discussion is that there are other companies on the planet other than these tech titans. And I can imagine that there's a lot of rooms with whiteboards, people contemplating a competitive strategy or cooperative strategy with them, and those whiteboards are frankly staying blank. What is, what is the thought process or what are the different ways of thinking about competing with these companies that are big, multifaceted, but fast at the same time? Victor, it's almost like a if you can't beat him, join him approach. And, um, you know, I think that that's, um, that's something that could be fraught with risk. Um, there is so much virtually every, every retailer, every company with a digital executive that I talk to ultimately finds that, um, you know, there's almost no way that you can avoid doing business with, um, with Apple in some way through its app store or through Google by leveraging things like its mapping technology or, it, you know, Facebook by leveraging single sign-on. Um, so it's almost inevitable that one has to rely on these companies in, in some way, shape, or form. Um, I think there are a couple of things. One is to just be cautious in the approach so that 
you don't give too many of your trade secrets away to um, to some of these companies who may ultimately buy some of your competitors or even create products that are um, that are competitive with you. Looking at how do you compete head on is is, a, is the right approach because it gets it, it's it's sort of like you know running against Usain Bolt in a race. But these guys are so good at what they do um, that you can't you, you can't expect to to win against them when they're they're so profitable and and they're so nimble and and innovative. Um, the bigger question is what are your what are your core assets? What do you have? Um, and why do your customers come to you? And how can you um, continue to improve your customer experience, improve your products and services um, in in spaces that are defensible? Yeah, it seems like when you think of retail, there's this sense of replicating the scale and diversity of the product set available on Amazon, which is just hard to do. And then you can contemplate a niche strategy that says, I'm going to be great at biking. So it's not just biking products, but it's biking community. It's it's expert advice. It's showcasing different biking events around the world and other things. It seems like there's an immersion question on the niche side that creates an opportunity for some 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 durable distinction. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I think that this boils down into zig where they're zagging, you know, go where they're not. And um, where, you know, I mean, and some of that could be in, in community building. It could be in new novel loyalty programs. Um, there are absolutely different places that are white space for, for everybody in every industry. Um, now, one of the big lessons that I think a company like Amazon, um, hopefully that companies are learning from, from Amazon, is that this, this ability to leverage um, adjacent businesses and um, use some of the success from those adjacent businesses to support um, the mothership, for, for a lack of a better expression. Um, and, you know, when you look at, at, you know, kind of Amazon and its core assets, I mean, they've known that, you know, traffic is a huge asset that they have. They get so much, um, so many consumer visitors to their site every day. So they decided to sell advertising against it and monetize it um, much the same way that Google monetizes its properties. Um, they have great technology and great AI. So they've definitely been able to leverage that to, um, to, to create and um, augment the cloud business. So it's what are the assets that you have as a business? Is it a consumer asset? Is it a traffic asset? Is it, um, you know, some data asset? What are the assets that, you know, could be a natural resource that is, is an asset? Or it could be IP um, in some category that's an asset. But what are those assets and can you exploit those into adjacent businesses? Because that's really the core of what all of the Titans have done is, is they've leveraged what they know and what they do well um, to create completely new businesses, often that are very profitable. And can you provide an example of a non-tech Titan who has done that? has gone into an adjacent possible or use their assets for um, to become more profitable in, in other business lines, um, I think it'd be helpful to understand that this is possible for someone who's not necessarily a digital native or, you know, has the depth and breadth of an Amazon. 
my favorite example is GameStop. It's a retailer in um, the gaming space, and that's a company that I think everybody should see themselves in because it's it's a challenged company and a challenged space, and um, they have difficult margins, and um, the, the the you know the market doesn't love them right now. So. Um, and, and yet, they are a company that has made acquisitions. They've gone into adjacent categories. They actually own um, a whole lot of AT&T mobile phone stores. They're actually the second largest AT&T reseller um, behind AT&T itself. And uh, the reason that that's so important is that it is a part of the company that generates probably about 13% of its top line, but more than 20% of its bottom line. And, uh, and I, I just think that that's a, that's, that's such a great way to think about how, how do you explore, um, new businesses while still helping your core business. And, and a lot of it does come down to where can you find profitable adjacencies, um, that can, that can help to sustain who you are in this hyper competitive market landscape. So let's look at three non titans that sort of created different paths for themselves. And for maybe for different reasons. And those three would be Etsy, REI, and then Target. So Etsy has built a, an artistic community of where you can get products that are built in the home and sort of join that artistic community as a buyer and a seller. You have REI that has branded itself as being a proponent of the outdoors, whether it's in the public eye as being an advocate of the parks and outdoors, and also in the loyalty program of bringing people in to feel like being part of REI is actually a form of status. And the third one is Target that just bought Ship that appears to be trying to emulate what Amazon has done in their fulfillment side of the house. So could you talk about those three? So I think that what is is common about all three of these is that they're trying to, um, you know, they're trying to find directions for themselves that um, keep them sustainable long term while also delivering great customer experiences. Um, and uh, you know, certainly in the case of Etsy and REI, they they've actually also been experiencing pretty good growth recently. I think Etsy is still challenged from a profitability standpoint. Um, but, uh, but they're, but they're growing, which suggests that, you know, the, they're, they're absolutely resonating with customers. Um, and Etsy is, was, was a pioneer in a lot of ways. Like they were one of the first marketplaces to put in an algorithm to ensure that all of the pictures that surfaced at the top of, um, of search results or at the, at the front of a search results page were attractive photos that consumers would actually want to buy. Um, these are things that, um, you know, the other marketplaces out there have only recently started to even think about. Um, now, the challenge for them is going to be how do they keep themselves from being essentially ripped off and, um, and mimicked. So that's, that's something that continues to be a challenge for Etsy is, is how, do you, how do you ensure that what they do continues to, to be strong? REI, you're absolutely right, Victor, is a company which um, is, is so mission-based. And you can see that not just in every touch point with the company, whether it's online or in stores, but there's a passion that their store associates have that I think is, is rare in retail. And a lot of that success is, is absolutely, it's a great membership program. It's a good assortment of product. It's very knowledgeable store associates. Um, and it's communities that it builds, whether it is, um, you know, yoga classes that it, it, you know, lets its members know about or hiking trips or, um, you know, or camping trips. 
Um, these are these are all the the elements that have um, that have been really really successful with REI in particular, especially as its other competitors have have struggled in sporting goods and and even in the outdoor space. Target is uh, is a company that I think is is trying to find its way in this landscape and. Um, well, I would argue that, you know, I think Walmart has done a better job of really, really, um, you know, kind of uh, cementing itself as, as a strong competitor to the digital tech titans. Um, I think Target, the jury is still a little bit out. I don't know that they fully recovered from even the, the data breach from a few years ago. Um, and then they invested heavily in digital and then have pulled back on some of those efforts and a lot. And they're they're planning to invest billions more in the years to come. But much of that is for omni-channel efforts and same-day delivery efforts and things that, um, that are, um, you know, to, to get to um, a level of execution that, that hopefully their customers want. But it's going to be a tall order because um, a lot of what they're offering is, um, is what Amazon and Walmart are also offering. Yeah, the cautionary tale there is that I'm going to spend billions of dollars to replicate someone who's already in motion. I'm going to catch up to someone who might have already left to do other things. So that seems to be sort of like one of the lessons of this, which is you just can't replicate the scale and speed game. You you have to find a different path. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that I would argue that's what REI definitely is is doing. So two threats that come to mind, and I'm just trying to gauge how you see them playing out. I had a media executive tell me that when you're in a room right now, the assumption is that 90% of advertising spend is already off the table before the conversation even begins. It is essentially sort of sucked up by the Titans and it has doing significant damage to the advertising space as one. And, and, and there's also discussions about, are we creating well, far too much market influence by too few companies. Do you see the government intervening here to create either fair competition or as an advocate of the consumer? Um, I honestly don't see a world in which there is not some type of government interference with respect to these large technology companies in the next 10 years. And um, the reason is the following. Um, anytime you have so much of a consumer's life or dependencies um, dependent on a company, um, you know, or so much power entrusted with um, with single companies, something happens. And whether it is um, regulation, um, like uh, the banking industry and the pharmacy industries have, that's one direction. Um, the other is some type of um, breaking up and dismantling of the companies if uh, the, the sense is that they're getting too powerful, like the modern-day Standard Oils. Um, so something, I suspect, will happen. It's interesting you refer to banking because one of the biggest threats facing banks is not other banks, but the possibility of Amazon coming into space and the same holds true for insurance. These are both highly regulated industries and which the, you know, the bank or, or insurer could argue that they've been, they're going to fight a battle with one hand tied behind their back. So you do kind of wonder whether these, the tech titans can operate in regulated environments in the same way they've operated in other environments with, with either less or different regulations. Right, right. And the same discussion is happening with pharma too, right? Because 
Um, there's talk about Amazon potentially getting into um, mail order pharmaceuticals as well. Um, and I think, honestly, what's prevented them from entering these businesses, even for even till now, has been in large part the regulated nature of of, um, of, of these potential businesses. Um, so it, uh, you know, but the, the size of the prize is so large, and there's so much margin in them that you know, I as they think about their own strategies for growth, it almost becomes inevitable that they have to consider some of these regulated categories. You do kind of wonder whether the banking lobby or the lobby from the insurance or pharma gets activated here because you're going to bring, you know, whether that's the U.S. Congress or other or other governments in play, protecting those that have funded their campaigns and their politics for a while. You do kind of wonder whether too much encroachment causes too much interest in regulating this t- these titans. Right, right. And you know, interestingly, you know, these titans themselves have very strong lobbying groups in D.C. and, you know, in Europe as well. So it's become a fascinating, um, you know, kind of game to watch um, to see who ultimately wins out. Um, you know, the, uh, the regulators exist to protect the customers um, and sometimes to protect, to protect competition. And, um, you, you know, and, and the, the challenge for the Titans is going to be, you know, are they doing everything they can to enable competition and or to protect customers? Well, on that last point, I, I think it's uh, important to bring up the GDPR, right? That's in protection of customers and European citizens specifically. So do you have an opinion about how that will play out for these tech Titans? What GDPR potentially does is that regulation that we're, we were alluding to earlier that really puts parameters around how these companies are able to, to operate. And um, it forces them to, to, to operate at a higher standard um, and to be much, much more careful about how they treat customer data and, and ultimately, you know, kind of uh, it protects customers presumably against um, – against any nefarious, um, you know, uses of, of that data. Um, so so I, I, I see this as probably one, one step in many steps that will likely happen um, to, to better um, put, again, those parameters around the tech titans to, to, to help customers in the long term. Um, and, and I see that, you know, in the future, many of these technology companies will, will have much greater regulation just around how they operate than they, they currently do now, where they're, they're, largely, they're largely unregulated. It seems like a, there's a body of thought as it relates to GDPR and e-privacy that part of the intent of it was to reverse or curtail the power of big U.S. companies that they have across all of the markets across the globe, that although centered on privacy and consumer protection, there was a key facet of it that dealt with just curtailing power. Yeah, no question about that. I mean, because the companies that it affects most are companies like Google and Facebook. Um, so, yes, that's that's absolutely, I think, um, the, you know, part of the the agenda that was that was in there. So let's play it forward a couple of years because the challenge in the marketplace is how do I compete with them? How do I either preserve, win back, or win new share in market? So let's say there's five companies that achieve that, and we're three years from now. What did they do to achieve those very ends? Um, 
So I think invariably those companies will have innovated. They will have done things that aren't done today. And that can be anything from, you know, new forms of payments or new forms of, uh, of artificial intelligence or um, new ways of sourcing products. Um, these companies will also have, honestly, they will have lawyered up. Um, they will protect their IP vigorously. And uh, that's something that um, that we don't see as much now with a lot of startups is uh, this concern that, you know, it's too expensive to protect your IP. It's easier to sell out. Um, another thing is that these large companies, the, the companies that will have thrived um, likely will not, would not have put all their eggs in the baskets of the tech titans. And finally, probably the most important thing is that these are companies that um, believed in the primacy of, of supporting their customers and delivering against what they uh, believe that their customers needed and serving their customers first and foremost. I mean, that is, that is perhaps the single biggest um, differentiator amongst any company that makes it versus their competition. Thanks for joining us today, Sucharita. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, guys. It's prediction season. Download Forrester's 2018 predictions guide at for.com slash predictions. That's F-O-R-R.com slash predictions. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.